With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and... Starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. For Heather Dietrich, this is success. Being really excited about getting up every day and coming to work. Dietrich is CEO of the news site The Daily Beast. She joined The Beast in 2017 after rising through the ranks at the now-defunct news blog Gawker. As president of Gawker, she was on the front lines of the Hulk Hogan lawsuit that ultimately bankrupted the company. Dietrich's background is in business and law. She's got both a JD and an MBA. And her strategy has always been to take risks. That's how she ended up in journalism. I'd always been fascinated with the news. Like, I'd always been a news junkie. Even as a kid, I would read the newspaper and talk about the news with my family. And when I was in high school, I was the editor of my school newspaper. And when I went to college, I thought, okay, I'm going to be a journalist. And in my first journalism class, they had a Washington Post war correspondent come and talk to us. And the job was just, it was very exciting, very scary. And I thought, I don't know if my personality lines up with this. You know, like a very young person way to think about it, as if this is the only way possible to, to do journalism. A war yeah, you could only be, you know, in the bunker, like yeah. eating canned food and and uh, taking on enemy fire. And at the same time, I was taking this constitutional law class in, in undergrad and really just fell in love with the, the First Amendment and the concept of helping journalists get their stories out. And I thought, oh, this is how I'm going to kind of convert this passion into my career. So I went to law school with that mentality. And so when you had been taking, like going for your MBA and, and all of this, did you aspire to like a leadership position? Did did you see yourself going beyond like a general counsel role and maybe like one day you could be running a company? I thought maybe one day, but I didn't know what the path was. And so part of getting there was about taking risks and lawyers are usually fairly risk averse, especially in career paths. You know, you go to a firm and there's this very lockstep way that you move move through it. And quickly in my career, my first firm collapsed. It was a financial crisis. And I, I went to another one and was kind of figuring out what I was going to do. And I clerked. And then I took this big leap to take a fellowship with Hearst. And Hearst has this very intensive fellowship for uh, First Amendment study and practice. And it's really amazing because, as I said, the field's really small and really hard to get into. So What's that look like, that fellowship? Um, You are working on their in-house First Amendment team. And unlike a lot of companies that use outside counsel to handle their work, they really have like a mini law firm running inside of it. And they are, they're just really one of the best teams in in the country. And so you are working side by side on First Amendment cases, you start with access cases. So you're helping journalists get information, though that means helping them file freedom of information requests, helping them pursue those, and at times sue the government when you're not able to get information. And then you start handling, you know, regular defense, First Amendment defense cases, defamation, privacy. 
And it's just a really intensive and fantastic experience. So I did that for about a year and a half or did the fellowship for a year and stayed on for a while, a while afterwards. And when the Gawker opportunity came up, I, I took another big risk in that in interviewing, the CEO said, you know, really like you, but this is a really crucial role. We haven't had anyone in this role. I need you to do a trial week. And I thought, what? You know, that, that's outrageous. I have a job. Yeah. Like, I can't do a trial week. I can't just it's tell not these like people. like an internship. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I can't tell them I'm on vacation. So when I left, I was thinking, you know, this like probably isn't going to work out. But I couldn't stop thinking about the job. And so the next day, I very uh, intrepidly went into my um, boss's office at Hearst and decided I was going to ask him, can I try out another job for a week? And if it doesn't work out, can I come back and have this job wow. still? Yeah, a really outrageous a, thing yeah. to ask. So outrageous. And he's just an incredible person who's a real believer in speech and helping journalists. And his answer was, look, there's no better way to advance your career in this space than to cut your teeth on the newsroom floor of a place like that. He had he had done the same at the New York Daily News. And so um, he very graciously said, go for it. And wow. if it doesn't work out, we'll be here. Um, Did you think that maybe if you made this ask, you might be just let go at that? At for the sure, spot? it was yeah. such an absurd thing to ask. If someone <laughs> asked me that today, I'm not sure I would. Yeah, I would be so gracious. You, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it was really extraordinary of him, and I took the leap, and the week went really well, and I ended up taking the job. Yeah, and, and then I mean, like when you ended up at Gawker, so that was 2013. Yes, and, and then by 2015, you had come up into like a leadership position like Nick Denton pulled you into this role when the company was undergoing like all kinds of legal issues and, and what was that like when you were presented with that opportunity to step up it was it was really exciting it was a little bit of a surprise though it shouldn't have been because in a lot of ways I was already doing that job I, I came over to Gawker to both build and le- lead a legal team and the company was though about 10 years old 11 years old at the time it was still a very nimble, very fast company being run like a startup, but that meant it also had a lot of chewing gum and bailing wire. And in my role as general counsel, I really started to dig into every corner and started to learn the business really well myself and then started to help manage parts of that business. Did you feel, even from being involved with startups, was it kind of like your role was supposed to be like adult in the room sort of thing? I wouldn't characterize it as adult in the room, but I would say part of it was to inject some processes when the company had just been moving so quickly for so long and, you know, hadn't hadn't put structure in place. And the role was to do that, but not to diminish its nimbleness and its its mission and its dedication to reporting the kind of stories it was reporting. When you were with Nick and you had to break the news to 200 employees that the company had gone bankrupt and was going to be sold... How did that feel when you had to confront your entire team and and be the bearer of that news? Um, it was it, honestly, it was scary to in in the moments before going out in front of hundreds of people to let them know that that we needed to file for bankruptcy. But you also were depending on all of the relationship you had built up before and this incredibly strong company mission to keep people on track. So when I went out there and said this announcement, typically the company had a lot of questions. They were very active in all hands and transparency was really important. And 
and, and everyone was engaged in kind of asking and answering questions. And for the first time, there was like utter, utter silence and mouths agape. And I was thinking to myself, oh, no, I, you know, maybe I've lost them and, and we can't hold this together. But we really need everyone to stay so that we can have a successful sale and keep the company going beyond uh, the Gawker ownership. And so I, I you know, this is in slow motion for me at the time, but I'm thinking, like, how do I advance this conversation? And so I thought, well, we are about asking and answering questions and getting information out there. So I'll ask myself questions that I imagine the frightened employee has in their head, like, what does this mean for me personally in this role? What does this mean for my family? What do I tell my spouse about this? Why would I stay? How do various parts of this bankruptcy work? And we went through that for a long, long time, like hours. And um, by the end, or rather after a bit of that people started participating and hands were going up and there was like real engagement again. And like by the end, smiles and everyone's full of energy and back to work. And I knew that because of this mission that the company had built, everyone was standing shoulder to shoulder and this would work, that we would keep everyone there and working. And and I couldn't say just, I, I hope you stay and do your job. I needed to say, I need you to do your job better than you ever have before, because we need to show this field of potential buyers that, you know, this did not get us down. We are still growing and we're putting out excellent stories. And and we did it. Um, probably three people left in the six months before we sold the company. And uh, people were working harder than ever. And we were growing. And it was really, really phenomenal. Yeah. And, and there were a lot of Gawker alumni who, who went through that. They're on record saying that how much they admired your leadership during that time and still do. And, and do you think that you were able to maintain that, that goodwill with them because of that that empathetic approach that you took? Well, I appreciate that they that they said that. Um, it certainly wasn't it wasn't just me. You know, it was just the way we had built the company over a series of years. But um, yeah, a lot of it was about empathy. I, I said at the end of that meeting, if you have any doubt in this period before we figure out this sale, come talk to me, and we will do all hands instead of once a month, every single week, and I'll keep you up to date as much as I possibly can. You know, you can't say everything in these circumstances, and I think people could believe me because. I had been transparent before. And I really felt the weight of every single person's job on my head the, the entire period. And, you know, I was going through trying to sell the company with our CEO and keep it running and drive the strategy forward. And if someone came and had a, a doubt, I would put everything completely aside and say, yeah, let's talk through this. If it's five minutes or two hours and, you know, I, you can trust in me that we're going to save all these jobs and get, get this company where it needs to be. And we did that, luckily. <laughs> it, I want to get back to that point where you said, like, lawyers are typically, like, risk averse. Like, w- when you were in your career path, like, what was getting you off that path, that the typical path? I think just a hope and a faith that, you know, the next thing will work out and it's worth pursuing this passion instead of doing something that, you know, is, is typical. And if if that next leap of faith doesn't work out, there will be something else. You know, you'll you'll make your way and and somehow scary, but um, and like in some ways you have some. There's a luxury in being being able to do that and being able to take a risk. But um, I think it's a real belief in in yourself and being able to 
you know, think about if if this didn't work out, what's the worst thing that would happen to me? And if that worst thing is not that bad and you could pick up and move forward, then go for it to pursue something you're really, really passionate about. And so did you go through that process as well, even when it was time to move to the Daily Beast? For me, I was looking for a place that was um, very mission-driven, number one. I had learned at Gawker through this difficult, tumultuous time that a business that has a North Star that everyone is aligned on is incredibly powerful. And that's really easy to see in journalism what that North Star is. You know, you're getting out these great stories, but it doesn't only apply to, to journalism or businesses like that that have a really lofty purpose. It could be you know, everyone is roasting coffee beans and understands like the mission of the company and what they're doing and they're passionate on, on doing it really well. And when you have a business that's aligned like that, I think you can just take it to the moon. And then number two, being in media, I was looking for a business that had a very strong core audience. So not one that was necessarily growing like gangbusters off the back of someone else's platform, but one that was that understood the brand and was very committed to the brand. With lots of conversations with like CEOs and stuff that I've had, um, I mean, obviously, it's it's fairly regular to have um, a lawyer end up in like a, a CEO role. But what I think is interesting is to make that move in a in a media company, where I would imagine that from a lawyer's perspective, everything is about being risk averse. Like whether it's Gawker or Daily Beast, they both have this like scoop driven mentality. And that's about taking big risks with reporting and stuff. So how do you how do you balance your approach between like your lawyer side of things and the media side of things? I mean, I think you can use as your guiding light what is newsworthy and what will make an impact in the way that you want it to make an impact. And so that means publishing stories that are important to your audience. I I would caution against looking at each individual story and saying, is this going to be worth it? Because there are some stories that are really important, but maybe, maybe it causes trouble in publication. You know, maybe it brings on a litigation or or something else. But if the journalist really believes in that story, it can often be important to advance it, even if there are some consequences to the organization. And so looking at each individual one is a little dangerous. You want to think as a whole, like, is this making the right impact that we want it to make? And do we believe in this story? Does this advance people's thinking? Does this expose some kind of truth? And, you know, if those things line up, then it's worth publishing. And in terms of your leadership style, what led to that approach to where you are right now as CEO of the the Daily Beast? I think it was a process for me and trying to figure out who I was as a leader. And I would read a lot about it. I would watch different people that I admired. For a while, I would watch TED Talks, you know, because those are like really prominent, big names, or maybe people you hadn't heard of, but that were doing phenomenal things. And I would think, okay, they had this style, they had this approach. And like, what pieces of that can I take? But ultimately, I realized I need to lean into what I am good at and I need to lean into my style, which is like being very transparent, kind of bring people along with me. I am empathetic. I'm not a salesperson. So I need to lean into what I'm good at and, and you know, develop around the margins and progress around the margins. And that's that's really what I did. And then at the Beast, I, I do the same thing. I'm still the same type of leader in wartime or in peacetime or in growth time. Um, it's just different different degrees. And when you did become uh 
CEO of the Daily Beast. What was that transition like? Like was in, in terms of just even the vibe of the company and then uh, adapting to it? It was an easy transition. It was refreshing to not be in wartime anymore and to really think holistically about the growth strategy and not have to build a big defense around it. And there were some similarities. There's like a gonzoness to the journalism that's that's a little similar. And it was just it was just very exciting to be in a place that is dedicated to not just telling their point of view but also bringing a story forward. Um, so, as you say, like you were in like a wartime mode when you wrapped up at Gawker. But what were some specific lessons that you pulled from that that you can apply now when you're not in defense, playing defense uh, for the beast? I will say, even when you're in wartime, you still need to grow the business. So, in all of the focus that we had on on growing the business continues to apply to the beast, and that focus was really around the content and the audience. So it wasn't around building a pillar of the business, you know, on the back of a a platform or or someone else. It was around being kind of rapidly focused on how our audience reacts to our stories, what stories do well with them and what brings people back. And so it's not about chasing scale, it's about, you know, bringing people down the page, engaging them and giving them another story that they really want to read. And then in terms, too, of uh, developing as a leader at The Daily Beast, recently you brought on uh, a new editor-in-chief, Noah Shackman. Yes. And, and so, like, what has that been like when you – now you're in a position where you're bringing on a new editor and you have to kind of develop that talent and, and all of that. W- what were you looking for with that? So Noah was really – responsible for driving the beast to be the scoop machine that it is today. He has really the the devotion to advancing the story and is an incredible teacher for people in the newsroom to kind of push them in that in that direction and keep them developing sources and developing their stories. So I was looking for that number 1 and number 2 someone that just has like a really great eye for a story. You know, Noah's just lit up when when something something is popping in the news or we have something great to publish and I just love that passion. It's really you can you can build the business around the excitement of getting out great stories and and he has that in spades. And as you look over your career, what do you think the the biggest challenge that you faced has been? It was no doubt keeping the company Gawker motivated and on track through a through a tumultuous time. You know, the company in its 12, 13 year history said, we are proudly independent. We'll, we won't raise money. We won't sell. And we were in a position where we very quickly raised money with a lot of hair on the business, went through this massive public trial, sold the assets. And um, that was all just a great challenge that I think we were ultimately really successful with considering the the headwinds. Yeah. Was there ever a point during that time where you felt stretched too thin, like a, as the support for everyone? Uh yeah, no, I, I would not be truthful if I didn't say yes to that. It was um, it was an around the clock experience, but I, I, it was so exciting. I wouldn't trade it for the world. You know, I I didn't think, oh, I've, I have another eighteen hour day. It was just uh, I was completely in the moment. Yeah, how how do you find like an excitement, motivational side to it when there's like. I don't know. In some ways, it's like a, a dark time for the company as well. Like, how how did you process that? Well, I think you need to think about it as solving a really complex puzzle 
with one hand tied behind your back. And then it becomes a difficult yet fun and challenging exercise. And, um, you know, the hard part was just having uh, a lot of the entire company relying on a successful outcome and wanting very much to make good on the promise that we would, you know, give everyone uh, a safe place at the end of this, you know, that their jobs would be saved, all of that. That that was the part that was weighing on me. But otherwise, you know, it, it's a puzzle. It, it And it's like a a difficult problem that a business needs to solve and you need to untangle it. And when you think, okay, we're almost out of solutions, you find that you can come up with something else and you can get some more time or, you know, more money or something to to extend yourself until you get to to the spot where you feel, okay, you've done it. And at this point, how do you personally define success? You know, on a personal level, I think it is being really excited about getting up every day and coming and coming to work. For the beast, it is about making an impact with our stories and getting them out to a lot of people and then getting them to understand that that's what we do and come back for more. Yeah. And looking overall at your uh, career too, what is the main driver for you? For me, in working in media, it is about telling important stories. It's it's about getting information out and uh, helping to advance, you know, the thinking of voters and people who need to make decisions in their lives, or people who buy products, or you know, rely on companies that we report on. All of our stories just help people go through their lives um, being better informed, and that's really important to me. What advice would you give to someone who wanted to take a career path like yours? I would say be open to serendipity and be open to kind of unexpected chances. And if you if there's if if you're excited about them, I think pursue pursue a non-traditional path and see where it takes you. I mean, the, I think the biggest trick is to keep yourself open. It's to like have conversations, be out there, explore things that you know you you might not think you'd ever do. Talk to people about what motivates them, understand what they love about their jobs, and figure out if there's something for you there. I think just ha- having that network. I mean, networking is such a cliche, but it is hammered home again and again because it really is important to just be open yourself. But as far as the decision making process, you know that that's like really personal depending on what you want to do. But you need to first have the options. You need to have things come to you in your orbit. And you can make that happen. Well, thank you so much, Heather. Thank you. Thanks for listening to This Is Success from Business Insider. Our show is produced by Anna Mazarakis and Sarah Wyman. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer, and I'm Rich Filoni. Before you go, Heather Dietrich has one more fun fact to share. So I've moved a lot in my life. When I showed up at college and in the dorm orientation, there was two truths and a lie. And one of my truths was that I'm 18 years old and I've moved 18 times. Um, My dad was in the tech industry, you know, when I was a kid and there was like a bigger job always. And eventually he opened a Microsoft office in Pittsburgh. We moved to Northern California for it, Seattle. But before that, we lived in Dallas, Harrisburg, Boston, kind of all over. But I think everyone knows that about me because I'm just chatty. (laughs) (laughs) Next week on the show, we've got Afrojack, the world-famous Dutch DJ. He said the perks of being a celebrity don't really interest him anymore. But the first time he got on a private jet was an experience. Oh my God, there's no security? I don't have to show my passport? I can just sit? I can have nuts? 
Subscribe to This Is Success in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to catch that episode and explore our archive. Please leave us a rating and write a review. It really helps others find the show. This Is Success is a production of Insider Audio.